How many of you remember the name Mike Tyson? You laugh because he's a character. The infamous boxer, he was the former heavyweight champion of the world. And one time during his boxing career, as he was being interviewed by someone from the press, he said something great. Uh, they were asking him what he was going to do in this next match that he would be fighting with one of his opponents, how he would prepare for that. And Mike responded by telling this interviewer exactly what his plan was. And then he said this. He said, but everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. In other words, he says, you can make all the plans in the world that you want to, but the moment that you step into that ring and your opponent connects his fist with your mouth, everything goes out the window. And you're lucky if you can even remember the plan, much less follow through on it. At that point, all bets are off, and even the best laid plans fall apart. Well, this morning, I want to share with you some of the story of a man in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, named Jacob. And Jacob was the kind of man who always had a plan. That Jacob always had a strategy of how he was going to get ahead, how he was going to make life work, no matter what the cost was. And brick by brick, Jacob built a life on deceit. And behind him, he left a path of destruction until one day God almost literally punches him in the mouth and everything changes. And from that moment on, he is never the same. Now, to understand this point in time that Steve read for us this morning, you've got to know a little bit of history behind Jacob's life. The passage that he read makes no sense until you do. And then it's still a little bit difficult to understand what's happening. But I want to give you a little background on Jacob. Jacob had a grandfather whose name was Abraham. You may have heard of him. When Abraham was an old man, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to give you a great land, the best land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Every person, Abraham, on the face of the earth, including you and me, is going to be blessed because of you. And it's all going to begin with a son. Abraham had that son. His name was Isaac. Uh, Isaac grew up, married a woman whose name was Rebecca, and Rebecca conceived twins. Now, it's the hope of every parent who has twins that those two siblings would grow up together to help each other and care for each other and be friends, but these two twins would not be friends. They would be enemies. And Rebecca reported that even as they were in her womb, she could feel them wrestling against each other. And the rivalry that these two siblings would have for their entire lives began right there. When it came time for Rebecca to, be, to give birth, uh, the first one, we're told, was born and he looked red. And uh, the Bible says that he, his body was like a hairy cloak. He was a red, hairy baby. And so they named him Esau, which meant red. Good name. Esau would grow up to be a grizzly bear of a man. He loved the outdoors. He was a mighty hunter, and he was just a man's man. And Esau was his father's favorite. Now, the second son who was born 
was born grasping onto Esau's heel as if to say, I wanted to be first. And so they named him Jacob. And the name Jacob has two meanings. The first is he grasps his heel. But the second one is incredibly important. I want you to remember it. He deceives. The name Jacob meant he deceived. Jacob was a much quieter boy. He grew up as more of a homebody, very different than Esau, and Jacob was his mother's favorite. And the first great conflict that happened between them occurred one day when Esau was coming into the field from a hunt, and he was exhausted. He came into the home, and Jacob had been making some stew, and Esau, who was very overdramatic, he says, I am so hungry, I'm going to die. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob, kind of like a used car salesman, sees an opportunity. And so Jacob says to Esau, I will give you some of this stew, but in exchange, I want your birthright. Now, what the birthright was is it was a right that was given to the firstborn child, in this case Esau, and it would give him a double share of the inheritance. And Jacob says, okay, I'll give you some stew, but I want this. And Esau very rashly agrees, eats the stew, and regrets it the rest of his life. And at that point, the seeds of hatred between these two are planted. But it would not be until years later, in an incredibly dysfunctional family, that all of it comes to a head. Uh, Years later, Isaac, the father, is old and he's blind and he calls to his firstborn Esau to bless him before his death. Now, these blessings were incredibly important in the book of Genesis. They're they're not like anything that we have today. Uh, Not only would they have been kind of the last important words of a father to his children, but they were also like prayers to God. And they were considered to shape the future of the person who was being blessed. And what Jacob does, if you know the story, is he disguises himself to look like and smell like his brother. And since his father is blind and can't tell exactly what's going on, Jacob sneaks in and receives the blessing that was meant for Esau. Now, I want you to imagine for just a a moment that you have a, a parent who's dying, a parent you love very dearly, and they call you on the phone and they say, I am dying and there's some words that I want to say to you that are very important. Could you come to me please so that I could tell them to you? And you get in the car immediately and you go there and it's a few hours away, you make that journey and you, you get to your parents' bedside and, and you say, there's, there's something that you want to tell me. Imagine if you had a sibling who somehow, who somehow uh, disguised themselves as you barged into that moment and stole the words out of your parents' life, or out of your parents' mouth, how would you feel? This is what happened to Esau. Jacob barges in, in this incredibly important moment that is meant for him, steals his father's words and steals his blessing. And when Isaac the father finds out, we're told in the book of Genesis, this old man trembled violently. In other words, he was so upset that he shook uncontrollably. And he tells Esau, and I want you to read exactly what Esau's response is. There is a huge emotional weight on this. Genesis chapter 27. If you could just flip back a couple of pages. Verse 34. Genesis 27, verse 34. This is what Esau says. You feel 
bad for the guy. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightfully named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him Lord over you. In all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. Oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. This is a manly, strong bear of a guy. And he lifts up his voice and he just cries. And if you keep reading, you will see that soon his tears would harden and he would become a man not of sadness but of rage. And Esau makes a promise. He says, I swear when my father breathes his last breath, I will kill Jacob. And Jacob hears about this. Jacob knows what a hunter Esau is. Jacob knows how dramatic Esau is. Jacob realizes that he's hurt his brother and he's hurt his father. And Jacob does the only thing that a deceiver knows how to do. He runs. He runs. He flees. He gets out of there. He doesn't deal with it. And he decides that he'll go uh, to a place that his mother suggests. He'll go to visit his uncle, maybe a couple hundred miles away. And so by himself, he takes this journey. And on the way, something extraordinary happens to Jacob. He's traveling through the desert, and he goes to sleep one night, and he takes a rock, and he puts it under his head. He must have forgotten his travel pillow. I guess he was leaving in a rush. He sleeps with a rock on his head, and he has a dream. And in the dream, what he sees is this ladder that reaches up from earth to heaven, and there's angels that are going back and forth, up and down. And at the top of the ladder, he sees God. And what God does is God makes Jacob the same promises that he made to Abraham. He says, just as I gave this to him, I'm going to give it to you. And then Jacob, after seeing this, he wakes up. And what's really amazing is Jacob's response to this encounter that he had with God. I want you to read that too. That's in Genesis 28, just another page ahead. Genesis 28, verse 20. I want you to listen really carefully to what Jacob says to God. He makes a vow to God, a sacred promise. And in verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. 
That's Jacob's vow. And I want you to notice two things about this vow. First of all, it it seems to be very heartfelt. I mean, Jacob seems to be very passionate in this moment, and he's been impacted by God in some way. But the second thing to see about this vow is two little words that tell you something very important. Two little words that tell you that this vow is only surface deep. And the two words are if and then. Jacob says, he says to God, if you will be with me, if you will keep me, if you'll give me food and clothing and a peaceful life, then you will be my God and this stone will be your house and I will give you one-tenth of everything that I own. If then. You know what this is like? This is like a boyfriend who has a girlfriend and he invites her out to a really nice restaurant on Valentine's night and he dresses up and he tells her to dress up and at the end of the dinner after he's wined her and dined her, he starts to get a little bit nervous and very serious and he says to her, there's, there's something I want to talk with you about and he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a little box and he says to her, What I'm trying to say here is, will you let me move in with you? And she opens the box, and it's his toothbrush. And he says, I'd like to keep this in your bathroom. Sweetie, what I'm trying to say is, I want to try things out with you. And if you will take care of me, if you will make my life smooth, if you will put food on the table and iron my clothes, and if everything is at peace in my life, then at some arbitrary point in the future, honey, that I decide when I think that you've done enough, I will marry you. And I will love you forever. By the way, this happens all the time. People don't say it like that. But that really is what they mean. And what this boyfriend is saying is, I really want to try out the milk, but I'm not sure yet that I'm ready to buy the cow. (laughs) My mom said that once. I got that from my mom. Really. That's what Jacob's vow is like. That's what his vow is. What he's saying is he's saying this, God, I'm going to give you a shot and I'm going to see how it goes. And if you come through for me, then in the future, I'll come through for you. And Jacob here is not a person who owns his faith. He's from a family of faith, but he doesn't own it. He's just renting it for a while to see if he wants to purchase. And that's Jacob. What Jacob is really saying here to God is this, I'm going to set the terms. We're going to do this my way. And I think if you or me or God in that situation were a little offended. But here's the thing. I don't think Jacob even realized it. I think he left this place and he he felt good about it. Felt good about this experience that he had had with God. But he would find out years later that God never agreed to his terms. And God never agrees to terms like this. Well, some years went on. Jacob did indeed go and live with his uncle. His uncle's name was Laban. He married two women, and this caused an incredible problem. To make it worse, they happened to be sisters. And what's important to know is that marrying more than one person is something that is never approved of in the Bible. 
in every single situation, it always goes bad. It always creates a mess. The commentary of the Bible tells us alone that is not what God has intended. But Jacob acquires great wealth and property. He has many children, but he continues to live the life of a deceiver. And finally, Laban, his uncle, comes to resent him. And Jacob is forced to flee back to the land of his father with a bridge burned behind him and a bridge burned in front of him. And on the way, as he's traveling with all of his possessions and family, he sends somebody ahead to scout out the area, and the news that he receives back sends a chill up his spine. It is the worst news he could possibly receive. Esau, his overdramatic, manly, bear of a guy, hunter, who swore he would get his revenge and kill him, is on his way. And not only that, he's got 1,400 men with him. And that's the background of this passage. That's what you need to know. And so, we come to the passage that Steve read. Now, this is an extremely mysterious passage, but it is the defining moment in Jacob's life. And what he does when he hears that Esau is coming is he sends everyone who is with him away with all the stuff, and he prays this desperate prayer to God as as people do when plans fall apart. And then he crosses this river. It's called the Jabbok River. Uh, The Jabbok is at the border of the promised land, this land that God said that he would give to Abraham. And you might think of it almost like the Huron River. It's not a real fast-flowing river, but it does move, and, and it has a little bit of depth to it. And he crosses the river. He's all alone, and this is what some people might call Jacob's dark night of the soul, if you've ever heard that expression before. He's terrified. This past that he has hoped to outrun has finally caught up, and he's all alone on this quiet night with the slow sounds of the river trickling in the background when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this man appears. And this is really strange the man starts to wrestle Jacob. He just starts wrestling him. And when you hear that, you have to ask two questions, two very normal questions. The first is, who is this guy? And the second is, why on earth is he wrestling Jacob? Well, the who is easy to answer. The why is a little bit more complicated. The who we have answered for us in the passage, Jacob tells you at the end. He says, I have seen God face to face. What Jacob tells us is this is God. Let that sink in for just a second. There's a word that theologians use for this. It's called a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in human form. And in the Old Testament, this happens several times. If you were here last week, the angels that visited Abraham, one of them is described as being God himself. This is Christ, the Son of God. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're familiar with them, uh, that's a theophany as well. And I don't know about you, but when I first heard that, I remember years ago thinking, that's just weird. I'm not sure if I would believe that Christ would step down and become a man and hang out with Abraham for a day 
or wrestle with Jacob. But you know the thing about that? If God really created this world, if this book is really true, God can do anything he wants, right? And isn't it awesome in some sense that Jesus would care enough to step into human form and, 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 and wrestle with this man, be a part of his life in this way. I actually think it's kind of cool. That's the who. The harder question is the why. Why does he start wrestling with him? There's not even any dialogue that's exchanged before this. Well, here's what I think is going on here. I think God wants, to see Jake, wants Jacob to see something about himself that he's never seen before. And he's trying to give him an object lesson. And this wrestling is a physical representation of what Jacob has been doing all of his life. It started way back in the womb. He wrestled his brother. And he wrestled his father. And he wrestled his uncle. And what he's really been doing all that time is wrestling God. All of his life, Jacob is trying to get the upper hand. He's trying to be in control. He's trying to make his life work. And he'll do anything that he needs to do to make it happen. And God steps into his life to teach him a lesson. And all through the night, we're told, right up until just before morning, these two fight. And this is hand-to-hand combat. This would be, have been a grueling battle because wrestling, if anybody's ever wrestled, it is exhausting. It's hard to do that for 10 minutes and not be out of energy. Jacob, who we've been told earlier is very strong, he wrestles the whole night. And he doesn't give up because he's Jacob. Jacob always figures out a way to win. Jacob never gives up. He always gets the upper hand. This is stubborn Jacob. And as exhausted as he is, he's still going to fight. But then the moment comes when everything changes. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And as the sun begins to rise and the night melts into the day, this man, Christ, the Son of God, touches the socket of Jacob's hip And with supernatural power, he rips it out of joint. And we can't imagine how painful this must have been. This would be excruciatingly painful. And the most powerful, important muscle that a wrestler has is gone. And Jacob, in that moment, realizes, I have no chance now. All of his confidence... All of this man's strength, all of the the self-assured pride that he's carried with him all of his life in that moment, at that second, it is gone. And he realizes he's defeated. It's over. And then God says words that terrify him. God says, let me go. For the dawn is coming. Let me go. For the dawn is coming. And I believe that what Jesus thought God was saying at that moment is, Jacob, I am going to abandon you. Jacob, we are done here. You are beaten and I am leaving you. You are on your own. 
And Jacob does something at that moment that's extraordinary. Jacob pushes through his pain, and with his good leg, he lunges forward, he takes a hold of the Son of God, and with all of the strength that he has left, he says, I will not go unless you bless me. He says, I will not let you go. The book of Hosea later tells us exactly what the emotion was of the moment. Hosea writes that as Jacob wrestled, he did it with tears and supplication. In other words, he was begging God, please don't go. You can't leave me. Don't leave. I need you to bless me, and I will not let go of you until you do. And Jacob here, for the first time in his life, he's a desperate man. He's covered in sweat and tears and pain, and he's exhausted. He's defeated. He's humbled. He's broken, and he just holds on to Jesus, and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And you know what Jesus says to him? He says four words. He could have said anything. He could have done anything. He says to Jacob four words. He says, what is your name? What is your name? And I wonder if in that moment, Jacob thought back to Esau's words so long ago, is he not rightly named? Grasp at the heel, the deceiver. And I think that for the first time in his life, finally, Jacob was honest and faced who he really was. And he replied, Jacob, the deceiver, I'm Jacob. Now, there are so many things that God could have done or said to Jacob at that moment. There are so many failures that he could have rubbed in his face. There are so many things that God could have demanded that Jacob repaid because he'd made a mess of his life and a mess of other people's lives. But this is Jesus here. This is ever gracious Jesus. And what Jesus says to Jacob in that moment is, you are Jacob no more. And he changes his name. Imagine how significant this would be for a guy who's always been called deceiver all his life, and he's owned it. Jesus says, I'm changing your name. I'm giving you a new name. I forgive you. I'm going to give you a new start. Your past is behind you. You no longer have to be the deceiver. From now on, I'm going to call you Israel, which means strives with God. And right there, laying down on that ground in front of the river, God blesses him, and the sun rises. And Jacob, who is now Israel, releases his grasp, and the man walks away. And Israel whispers to himself, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And he stands up, and he crosses the river to face his brother, And the land that God promised his grandfather with a limp that he would carry with him for the rest of his life as a reminder of that moment. It's a very powerful story. It's a very moving story. It's a very intense story. 
And what I want to do in my last few minutes is I want to apply this. I'm not going to try to apply this to everybody in the room this morning. I want to try to apply this passage to a very specific, very limited audience. This may be you, it may not be. What I want to do this morning is I want to apply this passage to anyone in the room who is like a modern-day Jacob. I want to apply this passage to anyone in the room who is a modern-day Jacob. Here's what I mean by that. If this is you, maybe you come to church week after week, most, most weeks here, and you're a very likable person. Jacob was likable in general until you got to know him real well. You've got lots of friends. Maybe you're a part of a community group and you've gotten involved in some way as an usher or in buddy break and you like the music here. It gets stuck in your head and you, you like to look for practical tips in the preaching that you can apply to your life or your marriage to make things better. And for you, it feels good to be here. You, you smile a lot. You laugh very easily, but the truth is that things are not okay. And despite all of your involvement here, all of this time, the person that you project is not the person that you really are. And like Jacob, earlier in life, you like the milk, but you're not ready to buy the cow. And you keep making promises to God and yourself about the future. You keep saying, someday I'm going to get serious about these things. Someday I'm going to change. Someday I'm going to deal with the things that I need to deal with. But the list is long and it feels overwhelming. And if you are very honest, the person that you are here is not the person that you are out there. Do you follow what I'm saying? You are Jacob. You're making your plans. You're trying to grasp life by the heel to get ahead, and you are a deceiver. Now, my experience with this is that sometimes God punches people like this in the mouth. Sometimes he does. I had a man this morning who said he was a little like a Jacob, and he knew he either had to work things out, which meant working things out with God, or he was going to lose his marriage. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes a person who is like this, God will not let them live with themselves and their conscience cries out all the time until finally they deal with the things they need to deal with. Sometimes it's a tragedy. Sometimes it's a crisis. Sometimes it's a divorce. But whatever happens, life falls apart. And like Jacob, they finally wake up. And God sometimes had to wrestle them to the ground. But you know it is much more terrifying? Sometimes God doesn't do that. God doesn't treat everyone the way that he did Jacob. And sometimes with great pain, like a father whose children are wandering, God allows that person to live the life they choose. He does not get in their way. He does not stop them. And God says, If you will not be serious about me, then I will not be serious about you. The dawn is coming, and I am leaving you to your ways. And many times, for for people who are like 
Jacob, these people are so afraid of what might happen if they own up to who they are when they should be so much more afraid of what might happen if they don't. I want to ask you this morning, is this you? Am I describing you? You might be the only person who knows it in your heart. You may have deceived every person in your life, but is this you? And if you are like Jacob, there is one thing I hope with all my heart you take away from this passage this morning. There's one thing you hear me say this morning. It is this. There is an ocean of hope for you. If you are Jacob, there is an ocean of hope for you. And this passage I just read proves it. Listen to this description of how God describes himself. This is for people who turn around and come to him. This is how he treats him, them, him or her. This is what they're like. This is from Psalm 103. You can close your eyes if you want to as I read this paragraph. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This story in Genesis... It's a story of a wretched guy. He has lived a lie his entire life, and he is forced to face it. That's the power of that moment. And in that moment, he realizes he is totally weak. He's totally unworthy. He is totally broken. And he does the one thing that deceivers struggle so deeply to do. He admits who he is. He comes clean. He's honest. He clings to Jesus for mercy, and he won't let go. He begs with tears and supplication for a blessing. And God gives it to him. He gives it to him. And if you're a Jacob, what I really believe God would want to say to you through this story is that if you would just stop running, if you would just turn and face God face to face, if you would just wrestle, he would say, with who I am and who you are. Oh, if you would just take hold of me and ask me to bless you, I would. If you would just tell me your name, I would give you a new one. This passage is the gospel. This passage is the good news. Jacob's life paints a picture of forgiveness and repentance and restoration. If you're a Jacob, it is safe to stop running. If you're a Jacob, God has his arms wide open. If you are a Jacob, don't be afraid to ask God his name. Don't be afraid to tell him yours.
I hope that you would cling tightly to Jesus and just watch as he makes you new. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you so much for this passage. It's just an amazing, powerful story, and it it tells of your strength, and it tells of your hope, and it tells about you just choosing this one man and being involved in his life. Father, I thank you that you care for each one. I thank you that no one has run so far that they cannot turn around. And I pray that if there is a person who is in here this morning who is running, pray that they, you would give them the courage to face you face to face. I pray that you would give them the courage to be honest. And I pray that they would experience your incredible grace and forgiveness. I pray you would give them a new name. In Jesus' name, amen.